Thank you for listening and subscribing to the Brilliance Security Podcast. Hello, my name is Steve Bocut, and I am an editor for Brilliance Security Magazine. Brilliance is an online digital publication dedicated to the security industry. Our mission, and thus our name, is to illuminate the intersection of physical and cybersecurity. We cover both of these security domains by publishing original content about threats, hacks, products, and security strategies. We hope you will enjoy this podcast and visit us at brilliancesecuritymagazine.com. Welcome to the Brilliance Security Magazine podcast, and thank you for joining us today. We appreciate your listening. Today, we're going to be talking with Eric Solis. He is the CEO of MovoCash, and we're going to talk about how consumer demand for cashless payment is changing society and how financial institutions can offer competitive digital services while preventing fraud. Let me tell you a little bit about our guest. For more than 15 years, Eric Solis has been a key contributor to the advancement of digital finance, including payments, micro-investing, securities, money transfer systems, transfer agents, and record-keeping. Today, he is the founder and CEO of MovoCash and is combining the best of banking and blockchain through Movo, a highly secure payment card platform that empowers customers to instantly send and spend money right from their mobile phones, even without a bank account. So this should be a very fun and interesting conversation. Welcome, Eric. Thank you for joining me today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me, Steve. All right. This is going to be interesting. So before we get uh, into too many questions about banking fraud or or cashless payments, tell us a little bit more about MovoCash in case some of our listeners haven't heard of you. Uh, Give us maybe the history of the company, core competencies, stuff like that. Yeah, so MovoCash is really the outgrowth of some of my early work in micro-investing. It was the realization that payments were very much operating in silos with a lot of friction and latency where uh, money just moved really slow. And you know, trading um, stocks and bonds and mutual funds uh, for most of my adult life it occurred to me that if I could build a system after building two micro-investing technologies, if I could build a a payment system that behaved more like a trading platform, it could uh, revolutionize the way people thought about moving, you know, a dollar from one place to another. And so really I took a lot of what I learned in micro-investing, applied it to a payments platform. And uh, uh, we filed for a patent um, December of 2013 uh, we received that patent uh, in October, November of 2018. And, uh, you know, it, it is essentially, at the end of the day, um, it's the idea of converting um, the very first known cashless way to pay, that being a piece of plastic, okay, and a mag stripe, and converting it to a completely digital form factor, where we, for all practical purposes, convert um, a 16-digit card number into the equivalent, so to speak, of a serial number that you would find on a dollar bill. And we, we sort of taught how you can move that, that um, uh, value digitally 100% without human intervention from one node to another in real time 
and uh, essentially then tap into an install base of 45 million merchants worldwide without ever having to go out and acquire one single merchant by essentially tapping into MasterCard, Visa, and the credit card rails and the work that's already been done to create that entire infrastructure. Wow. Okay. Well, that's, that's fascinating. I, I'll be interested to, to learn a little more about that as, as we go through the conversation. Um, so let's start with giving the audience kind of a, um, a high-level overview of, of two things, actually. Maybe you could give us kind of a, a state of the industry as it relates to banking fraud, but also where are we at with cashless payments? We all, everyone's using some form of cashless payments, but I'm sure, not sure that everyone, including myself, is fully aware of, you know, how that industry has grown and, and what's available, um, you know, and how it's matured. So it's an interesting question because I think that in many ways, uh, you know, as we stated a moment ago, people have been using MasterCard, Visa, and plastic in lieu of cash for decades. And so the idea that we're kind of like in this digital cash revolution and it's happening here and now and, and such is, is somewhat of, 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 a, of, a, of a misnomer. I think that what is happening is that it's, it's really a, 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 an exponential move towards the way we think about digital cash. So for example, the introduction of cryptocurrencies the introduction of even prepaid cards, the introduction of new ways in which peer-to-peer platforms are working. That's really the next iteration. And when you start to get into the concept of central banks getting you know, into digital currencies, it takes it even one step further. And, and maybe we can talk more about that later. I think your question is, where are we at in the journey of digital cash? Where are the inflection points that really become, tr- become transformational? And I do think that, that when we start to think about eliminating plastic completely, things, uh, innovations like Apple Pay, Samsung Pay, um, and, and such, those types of form factors make other innovations possible where processing technologies are concerned, digital banking solutions are concerned. And I think that that's really the, um, the conversation that many are having today in terms of the transformative breaking down of the brick and mortar bank as we once knew it. Okay. All right. Interesting. Now that's, that's an interesting way to look at it. I really hadn't looked at it from that perspective. Um, so let's tie that into banking fraud. So are, are these new digital um, payment forms, um, are they solving some fraud problems or are they introducing additional vulnerabilities? Um, from a banking fraud perspective, how does that all work? So I think one of the things that we, um, I think are challenged with more now than ever is figuring out who's who. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's no secret that the, that the, the, the dark web is littered with um, identifications of all shapes and sizes. And, 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 you know, your identification, my identification, probably floating around on the dark web somewhere. And at some price, somebody can own it. So what we need to focus on as an industry is 
um, developing new ways to identify a human being. And um, it's not as easy as it sounds. You know, the idea of knowing a social security name, address, date of birth is antiquated um, and um, for all practical purposes, irrelevant in, in, in terms of understanding who somebody is. Um, there are digital IDs and fingerprints now. Um, for example, your mobile device, um, you know, the way that your mobile device communicates with your laptop or other devices in your home, uh, all of that starts to become a digital fingerprint that is, is more, more reliable than your name and social security number. So um, these types of evolutions in technology are moving slower than the fraudsters are. The fraudsters are doing like, you know, 120, 120 miles an hour down, you know, down the fast lane and, and the banks are over on the right side in the slow lane, like 18 wheelers. And, uh, and, and unless something changes fast, the industry could find itself in, 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 a, in a rather, you know, significant stranglehold. So I think that that's the biggest challenge for the industry and, and it, it will require new ways of looking at, 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 at identify, identification for purposes of opening financial accounts. All right. So it just occurs to me as you were speaking then. So an ad hoc approach to this is not going to work. We have to have standards. Um, so, you know, banking standards and cashless payment standards and all of those things have to be worked out across the board so that everybody's on the same page doing everything the same way. And that's probably why the banking industry moves slower than, than maybe the adversaries do because they don't, they don't have to worry about standards. So talk to us about that. What do we, what do we need to do so that we're all doing this the same way and it works across the board? Yeah, you, we hear the term status quo and there are industries, there are um, players in industries that benefit from the status quo. Mm -hmm. and, and there are ways in which that status quo create competitive advantages. So, so breaking those, um, the, the status quo down um, sounds easy, but it's not because there are forces and dynamics that come into play that are um, deep underneath the surface, right? They're, they're hidden from, um, you know, sort of like the naked eye. Um, one of the, one of the um, pathways perhaps to attacking efficiently the status quo would be standardization of new ways to um, manage these critical changes that are happening in the industry. So I'll give you an example. You know, everybody talks PCI, PCI, PCI compliance, you know, payment card industry compliance. Well, you know, are we still in a world, are, is it payment card? Is it payment cards that we need to concern ourselves with? My answer is no. It's no longer a payment card industry world. It's a digital cash world in every way. Um, you know, even, even MasterCard and Visa are, are no longer using their card rails in the same way that they did even 10 years ago. It's a different world. 
So we need to, and, and, and I'm working hard on getting the attention of the industry. I was on the phone with senior execs out of Visa a week or two back. I'm on the phone with ANSI. I'm on the phone with their subsidiaries X9. I'm on, I'm on the phone with anybody that I can get to listen that it is paramount that we think very differently about standardization of the way that, you know, you've now got peer-to-peer payments, which is a fairly new um, phenomenon. And, and how do we standardize around that? You know, if you read, for example, Venmo's terms and conditions, it'll say, hey, only do business with family and friends because, you know, these aren't real bank settlements. Well, you know, that's, that's, that's a problem because in a world where P2P payments are being used for legitimate business and, tr- and transactional purposes, um, we, need to, we, we need to get out of that realm where these are just sort of like fun little ledger technologies and they're converted into legitimate banking rails where when you move $1 from one place to another, you have instantaneous settlement that money is, 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 is in a FDIC insured bank environment and can be spent instantly using you know, the massive infrastructure that's already been put in place around the world. And that's what Movo essentially sets out to accomplish are those exact um, objectives. Interesting. Sounds like, sounds like we may have an uphill battle though, because it's very likely those same people who are incentivized to maintain the status quo that we need buy-in from in order to change those standards or adopt additional standards for cashless payments over and above, you know, credit card um, payments. Um, Interesting. So we're going to, we're going to take a a short break here, but when we come back, let's talk about how financial institutions can offer competitive digital services all the while preventing fraud. So uh, hang on. We'll be right back. Welcome back, um, Eric. So we were talking about um, how financial institutions can offer competitive digital services while still preventing fraud. So talk to us about that a little bit. So I think that um, the opportunity to disintermediate some of the banking ways of, of seeing the world and, 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 and the outcome of that being a substantial reduction in the cost of banking is the greatest benefit to consumers. So there are, I think, ways in which um, the future of banking can think much more about, let's call it a merchant-funded solution where the consumer for all practical purposes has all of the fees that up to now have been charged by banks put back in their pockets. Mm. But in order for that to happen, we must squeeze out the fraud. The fraud, unfortunately, is what creates high fees, believe it or not. Fees are not so much necessarily in every case, the financial institutions desire to just put money in their pocket, they may desire greatly to offer a service at a very low or even zero fee. But what happens is many times um, you can do offer something at a zero fee rate and the fraudsters come in and use it for nefarious purposes. And they many times are moving, you know, really small bits of money around. So like, for example, if they can figure out a way 
you know, to verify an account, you got to do a micro deposit. So what do they do? They start creating a whole bunch of accounts, create a bunch of micro deposits, aggregate all those market deposit, micro deposits, and then cash it out to their bank. So suddenly you have to create a fee for the micro deposit because you got to <laughs> keep them from being, you know, it's all these weird ways in which, you know, the industry is all goofed up along those lines. So I think that a real focus on, on, on tamping down fraud, figuring out if you can know who's who, then it makes it much harder for fraudsters to establish bogus accounts. Bogus accounts are at the root of where the breakdown starts. It's where they start to use that account for nefarious purposes. Um, you know, there are some bad actors that identify, but most of these are are synthetic accounts. They're accounts where the person has, you know, acquired an identification um, in, in an illegitimate way, and then they use it, you know, in the account in a way that it wasn't intended, and that drives fees up. So all this is kind of connected. The value proposition to the consumer is directly connected, a good consumer, directly connected to us figuring out better ways to fight fraud. And, uh, you know, again, that's what Movo has set out to do is at the root, our point is to um, make stealing a 16-digit card number pointless by exhausting the value off that 16-digit card number in real time. So suddenly, if you can accomplish that task on a wide-scale implementation, then fraudsters are much, much less incentivized to go out and spend their hard, you know, stolen money to steal your card number. And, and so, and I think that there are some unique ways that we can even parlay that type of technology into, um, you know, ways to alter IDs um, so that you're not constantly giving out the same um, credentials to identify who you are. So all of this starts to connect at the root level of some of these types of technologies. Interesting. Yeah, I can certainly see how they're all connected. So lowering fees is connected to um, fighting fraud. And of course, fighting fraud is connected to real identifying who people actually are. Is this the right person? So all of those things kind of have to line up in order to get to it, which, which would be a great place to get to a great goal, get to a place where, you know, there are no fees associated with, with these uh, financial services. And it's doable. All right. So there's this idea out there about a government backed digital dollar. So talk, talk to us about that. Is that uh, is it a good idea, a bad idea, and you know, either way, why? Yeah, so the, the term that's being used is a central bank digital currency. And um, you know, there, this sort of s was sparked by Bitcoin and the use of uh, distributed ledgers, blockchain technologies. Um, it is still under you know a lot of scrutiny in terms of how they would do it you know some some people are are even saying that the way that the central banks are thinking about it may not include um, a distributed ledger my take is that if it does it will not look anything like what you would see in bitcoin which is a public blockchain it would be very permission based it would be um you know you, you know it's very small group of of, you know, it would probably be something like the way we know the central bank to work, Federal Reserve Bank to work today, where it's a, you know, a, a consortium of banks 
that would manage the ledger. Um, you know, I think it's, it's probably is the matter of time before something of that sort comes to, to fruition. Um, in the meantime, you know, I think what they're doing is looking to collaborate with private companies um, to understand the best practices. Um, you know, it, it, it gets in some ways somewhat argue that a central bank um, that is attempting to do something even close to what Bitcoin does would be at its core, you know, broken um, because the point of, of, of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies is to take centralization um, completely out of the equation, right? So it's a bit of a, like a jumbo shrimp or an oxymoron in that sense, because, um, you know, the, 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 again, let's go back and, and look at the fact that digital money exists. Much of what the, the banks do today involves digital money. So are they looking for a more immutable solution where it's less porous and um, less subject to potential hacks? For sure. And I think that that ought to be the primary focus. I think some of the conversation that we've been having up to now would be, they would be much better, their time would be much better spent solving that problem, I think, than attempting to compete with Bitcoin. I just don't, I just don't think if Bitcoin becomes the solution that uh, for crypto money, then we ought to just use Bitcoin. I don't think they're going to improve on that. What they can improve greatly on are some of the things we've been talking about up to now, figuring out better ways to manage the existing system, figure out who's who, and do it in a way that um, you know doesn't impede on per, on privacy and people's personal lives. Okay, interesting. So, so your position then is that a, a centralized, a central bank digital cash is not a necessary step for us to get where we need to be. We could do that using Bitcoin, you know, those kinds of technologies that already exist. That, I just don't think they're going to. Okay. I don't think they're going to improve on Bitcoin's technology. I think it's. I think that what Bitcoin is capable of doing, if that's what the way you want to do it, you know, don't, that's what then just use Bitcoin. Sure. Uh, it's, it's, it's really, you know, people talk a lot about the differences between blockchain distributed ledger and Bitcoin, but if you're going to use cryptographic, um, if you're going to use cryptographic money that attempts to um, essentially solve the real problems that the central bank has, which is um, hyperinflation, devaluation of currency through uh, essentially printing it en masse, you know, with just, you know, a group of people deciding that that's okay. Those are the problems that Bitcoin and cryptographic money set out to accomplish. Um, that is not what a central bank digital currency would look like. So mm -hmm. I think that there are two different animals and to, to attempt to put them into the same conversation, uh, which was what I believe the central banks are doing doesn't doesn't make sense they're they're two different animals and what they want to create versus what crypto um advocates and and, and enthusiasts want to create are two different they, they don't even belong in the same conversation got it all right well thank you so i'd like to wrap up with uh, kind of this final question it's really open an open question so 
what, what should I, I have asked that I didn't? Or is there anything else that you think our audience needs to know about digital cash, um, you know, digital currency, uh, um, mobile cash, um, banking fraud? Yeah. So the one, the one um, thing that I think if we all stop and, and, and just like forget about the way we've been trained to um, behave with money, in particular, the earliest forms of digital um, cash, such as the plastic we talked about at the beginning of your, of your show here. And we think about the fact that we have a 16-digit card number that we walk around giving everybody, every, you know, Tom, Dick, and Harry, you set it on, you know, you walk into Costco, you give it to them, you walk into Walmart, you shop on Amazon, you're giving them that card. And, 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 and you already know that that card number is getting ripped off out of every acquiring system on planet Earth. Mm-hmm. You know, every year they got to send you a new card. You're constantly getting notifications that you might have been compromised. And so why do we keep doing it? And think about this. You know, you and I are old enough to know when we grew up, we bought a, you know, album down at the local record store or CD or whatever. You walked in, you took $13.25 out of your pocket. You sat it down. They took $13.25, put it in the cash register. You walked out with the product. You didn't walk in and say, here's a number that gives you access to every dollar in my bank account. By the way, only take $13.25, please, right? Right. That's insane. So Movo, uh, that is really at the root of what Movo wants people to think about, is since we now can use your mobile phone to spin up essentially a denomination of cash that you choose using a 16-digit card number, which we all know how to use, Okay, so I can now do that. I can walk into those, the, the, that record store or, 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 or buy something online at Amazon or hop into, hop into you know, an Uber and I can spin up an exact denomination of cash using a form factor that the whole world understands. It's a 16-digit card number, okay? And I can use a fingerprint. I can use my face. In the case of Amazon One, I can use my palm as a form factor because that 16-digit card number can connect to any of those new form factors in the digital world. And so that's what I would want people to be thinking about. Card on file transactions, you store your card to pay for a gym membership and you give them your 16-digit card number that taps into the full balance of your bank account or your entire credit limit. That's insane. Don't do it. Use mobile cash. Interesting. I love that. That's a great way to describe it. And it doesn't, it does seem insane when you describe it that way. Why would I give you access to, you know, the crown in today's jewels? world, in yeah. today's world, that's crazy. Yeah. All right. Fascinating. Well, thank you so much, Eric. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you for spending time with us today. And a big thanks to our listeners for being with us today. Please remember to like and subscribe if you find this podcast interesting. And join us next time for another episode of the Brilliance Security Magazine podcast. 